listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. Hi, I'm your host, Miles Lassiter. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation that I had with Lynn Stout in 2015. Sadly, Lynn Stout passed away in 2018, so I feel so honored and grateful to have had this conversation with her before then. She is best known for being the author of The Shareholder Value Myth, which I think is even more timely today. She argues why this primacy of maximizing shareholder value is not actually enshrined in any formal legal doctrine. These days, it's really relevant. The CEO of BlackRock, Larry Fink, released a letter to the S&P 500 CEOs calling for corporations to act with social responsibility and to see beyond short-term gains. If you don't know it, BlackRock is the largest or one of the largest asset managers in the world. The Business Roundtable, I think it was 180 CEOs or more, signed a statement that committed their companies and their leadership to of those companies for the benefit of all stakeholders, customers, employees, suppliers, community and shareholders. Professor Stout's book stands in contrast to Milton Friedman's famous essay, The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Its Profits, which was written 50 years ago. According to Pensions and Investments Daily, the value of global assets applying environmental, social, and governance data to drive investment decisions has almost doubled over four years and more than tripled over eight years to $40 trillion in 2020. That is is a tremendous change and remarkable to see. I apologize for the sound quality issues, but given the topic, I think the content is worth it. Please stick with it, and I hope you enjoy Professor Lynn Stout. Welcome to Startups for Good. Uh, Professor Stout, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Lynn, if I may call you that, you're the author of The Shareholder Value Myth, which is a fascinating uh, short guide to the legal ins and outs of this idea of corporate uh, shareholders having primacy and managers and directors being legally and duty bound to maximize shareholder value. And you explain in this this wonderful little tome uh, how this is really off base. Um, Before we dive into all that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and your academic interests generally. I've always specialized in uh, business law and corporate law since I began teaching, and I'm not going to tell you how many years ago that was. <laughs> but, but when I first started out, I had very much subscribed to the notion that corporations were supposed to maximize shareholder value and that managers had a duty to do this because, of course, that is what I had been told and that's what everyone seemed to believe. And it seems like a rather intuitive, you know, sort of straightforward idea. Uh, So that's what I believed when I began teaching, and that's what I used to teach my students. But it didn't take me too long, um, uh, too many years in academia, and actually reading cases and reading the newspaper and then getting involved in the business world before I began to realize that, in fact, when you peel back the layers and look at what's really going on, this idea, despite the fact that it's so widely held, turns out to be fundamentally wrong. Uh, It's just not correct that there's a legal duty to maximize shareholder value. And when you look at it more closely and understand the realities of the business world, you begin to understand that it's a good thing it's not actually a legal requirement because for most companies it's a very bad idea. 
bad, in fact, for shareholders themselves. In what ways? Well, uh, one of the things that uh, people often uh, don't realize is that when we say that directors have a duty to maximize shareholder value, uh, what that translates to is a practical matter, is the perception of a duty to raise the share price. And it turns out there are lots of ways that managers can raise share price temporarily uh, for a few months or even a year or two um, that are not so great for the business in the long run. Uh, this is one of the reasons I've come to suspect why actually if you look at the returns from holding stocks in public companies, they've gone down since we've started embracing this idea. And certainly focusing on maximizing share price does not seem to be working out terribly well for other people who are involved in corporations, especially employees and to some extent also customers and taxpayers in uh, the United States. Because, of course, when corporations spend all their time trying to figure out ways to avoid paying U.S. taxes, U.S. taxpayers have to make up the difference. As a matter of practicality, this idea hasn't worked well for investors uh, but you're also making an argument in the book about the legal facts here that you're not required to attempt to maximize the shareholder value or the short-term stock price. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, there's a there's um it's interesting the idea that there's a legal duty to maximize shareholder value. Um, uh, in fact, uh, if you look at law itself, there's just <laughs> it just doesn't say that. So we can start with corporate codes. And uh, each of the 50 states uh, has a corporate code, including Delaware, which is the most important state for corporate law since the majority of Fortune 500 companies are incorporated there. And if you look at Delaware law, what it says, like the law of every other state, is that corporations can be formed for any lawful purpose. There's nothing in the corporate code that says that the purpose has to be maximizing profits, much less maximizing profits for the sole benefit of shareholders. Um, Similarly, when you form a corporation, you have to create a corporate charter, or it's sometimes called the Certificate of Incorporation or the Articles of Incorporation, and this is a document that is, in effect, the constitutional, uh, the constitution for the corporation. It sets out the basic rules, and if you look at corporate charters, what they almost invariably say is that the purpose of the corporation, again, is to do anything lawful. And by the way, there's no reason why you couldn't create a corporate charter that said the purpose is to maximize profits or maximize shareholder value. But I've looked and I've never seen such a thing. They almost always say maximize, sorry, they almost always say anything lawful. And when they say anything different, they usually say our purpose is to produce a particular product or produce a particular service. So there's nothing in corporate charters and nothing in corporate state corporate codes that says this is the law. And when you look at case law, um, what you'll find is that uh, case law is a little squirrely. Um, there are cases that say that, uh, in fact, for almost all cases, will say that directors owe a duty to the corporate entity. Um, many cases say that the duty is owed to the shareholders and the corporation, uh, which is an interesting concept uh, because obviously that implies the corporation and the shareholders are not the same thing. But in all of these cases, the case law respects something called the business judgment rule. And what the business judgment rule says, uh, it really stripped down to its essence, is that as long as the directors of the company are reasonably informed and are not using their powers to enrich themselves, they can choose any business course they want. And if they say that they think it's in the best long-run interest of the corporate entity, the courts will not 
interfere with their business judgment. So there's no reason in the law why the directors of a corporation like Google or Apple or pretty much any corporation you can name could not say, you know what, uh, we are not going to pay out the biggest dividend possible. We're going to take our profits and we're going to use them to raise employee salaries or to invest in customer support or to do research and development to devise new products or to make charitable donations or to pay taxes. Uh, there's no reason, you know, these corporations that are pursuing what are so-called inversion transactions uh, in order to avoid U.S. tax bills, there's no legal duty for them to do that. They could stay right here and be good tax-paying citizens. And so where do you see the boundaries of this judgment rule? You said that it allows a director's latitude as long as they're not enriching themselves. But is there some limit somewhere? I mean, if they are purely focused on covering jobs, so an example you didn't pick, uh, or is there other uh, boundaries somewhere for them? Um, well, there really aren't other boundaries, and that's things that it, it seems very counterintuitive sometimes to people who um, uh, first encounter this doctrine. They say, oh, don't you think these directors are going to run amok and do a terrible job? But I think we need to listen to the lessons of history. Uh, directors have been pre protected by the business judgment rule for decades, indeed, arguably centuries. Uh, this is not, you know, the corporation is not a new business form. We've had them in one form or another for a very long time. And for most of that time period, especially these public companies, have been run by these apparently unaccountable boards of directors. But historically, uh, until we started embracing this shareholder value myth, despite this apparent lack of accountability, boards did a pretty good job of looking not after not only shareholders, but other stakeholders as well. So if you study the history of corporate America, what you see is that for most of the 20th century, big public companies were run according to a philosophy called managerialism, or as it's sometimes called, managerial capitalism. And according to this business philosophy, directors, boards of directors, viewed themselves as stewards or trustees of great economically and socially important institutions. And they viewed their duties uh, as the duty to run the corporation in a way that would serve not only shareholders, but also employees, customers, the community, and the nation. And interestingly enough, when directors followed this approach, this managerialism philosophy, shareholders actually got better returns from owning public equity than they're getting today. And there's no argument that had to be made from a legal justification perspective for these directors to say that it would benefit the shareholder in the longer term, as you're saying. It was as as they were looking after the interests of these multiple stakeholders, they were, in fact, getting better returns for shareholders. Exactly. And there, there are plenty of cases where um, essentially courts go along with boards that say something very much like that. Boards say, look, um, we're making these charitable donations or we're picking this business strategy or we're taking care of our employees because we believe in the long run, that's going to be the best thing for the business and ultimately for our investors. And that's a, a very respected rationale in corporate law. It still is today. It's not that the law has changed. What's changed is primarily the beliefs of people in the business world about what their job ought to be, combined with a change in the incentives that executives face. Can you talk more about that? Where do you think those beliefs have come from? Well, the beliefs themselves, pretty interestingly, you can track them back to the free market economists uh, in Chicago in the 1970s. This is a very Milton Friedman-associated uh, idea. Milton Friedman in 1970 
uh, published a famous article in the New York Times where he said the only purpose of business, um, the only social responsibility of business is to maximize its profits. But um, as great an economist as Milton Friedman may have been, he never went to law school. And since corporations are legal entities and legal persons, as the Supreme Court keeps reminding us, um, it turns out that if you really want to understand what a corporation is, you have to pay close attention to the law. And Milton Friedman literally did not understand what a corporation was. He didn't understand the legal rules that create it or that govern it. And he seemed to think it was just a gigantic sole proprietorship. Um, and he also seemed to think that if you were a proprietor, all you would care about was making money. So this idea seems to get started with economists, oddly enough, but it sort of slowly creeps into uh, business schools, creeps into economics departments, and then eventually even into law schools as we see a sort of general social trend toward embracing what people, economic theory and economist views, however poorly informed, um, and the rise of a sort of conservative movement that um, uh, supports the idea of free markets. Um, by the way, personally, I have nothing against markets. It just turns out that um, this understanding of what corporations are supposed to do is based on a misunderstanding of what they are and the kinds of markets they operate in. Yeah, it seems as if they've taken an economic model with a purely rational actor in it and projected that out onto the world, and um, it doesn't it doesn't always fit. And there's even been a revolution in in economics, studying behavioral economics, how do real people make decisions in the in the market, uh, which I think has further informed and moved the field forward of economics. Yeah, no, we we've, we've learned that people are not, in fact, purely selfish, and it's a good thing too because we all do better when we're not purely selfish. Um, being unselfish actually turns out collectively to leave us better off. So, you know, that's, a, that's another famous assumption from economic theory that people accepted as accurate but turns out not to be so. And it's led to a lot of uh, bad policy uh, based on this bad assumption. It's the same thing um, with uh, corporate governance. It's a, it's a false assumption that there's a duty to maximize shareholder value and that doing that will cause corporations to perform at their best. Um, and now we're paying the price for the widespread embrace and application of this false assumption. Don't just listen, get engaged. I host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. Why do they need support and why is it hard? Well, think about all of the challenges of a nonprofit startup where only 2% ever make it to more than 10 million in annual budget and all of the challenges of a tech company in building a team, understanding users, figuring out what to build and architecting the right product. So why does it matter? Well, think of the established large tech nonprofits that impact your life. Mozilla makes Firefox and other important internet infrastructure. Wikipedia collects and distributes knowledge. Code for America makes our government work better. Code.org and Khan Academy teaches us all. In healthcare, Medic Mobile powers living goods and other local community healthcare workers. So go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle to find out more. So you're making some empirical claims about why things have gone a certain way and the way to run 
companies and organizations going forward. But you're also making uh, claims that are really grounded in your expertise as a legal scholar, that there is no legal duty here. And I just wanted to clarify on the legal side that, you know, this doesn't just apply to Delaware. This isn't just public companies. There's no extra requirement uh, on the, the National Stock Exchange that gives it an extra duty that, that, that there's no uh, word game you're playing here. There's no duty to be found anywhere in case law or anywhere else. Yeah. The, the only time when uh, courts have actually held directors legally responsible for failing to get the share price up as high as possible is when a company is entering what we call a going private transaction, which means that the existing public shareholders are being forced to sell their shares back to the firm so it can acquire a single controlling owner. In those going private transactions, that's the one case, that we call it the Revlon mode based on the Revlon case, where directors have a duty to maximize shareholder value. And the rationale is very straightforward. The shareholders are being kicked out of the firm. <laughs> the directors are going to go work for a new controlling shareholder, and we have to worry that they might try and make their new boss, their new controlling shareholder, happy by uh, asking the public shareholders to accept too low a price in the process of getting kicked out. That is the one area of case law. But interestingly enough, um, there's no obligation on the part of the board of a public company to kick the public shareholders out. Um, and in fact, a Delaware case, a recent Delaware case, Air Products versus Air Gas is a great example of this. Um, Air Gas was a public company. Um, it it had its stock trading at about $40 a share, $40, $50 a share. Air Products came along and wanted to buy the company and become its controlling shareholder, basically ask the existing shareholders to take money and go away, and they offered $70 a share. Now, if you thought the directors of Air Gas had a duty to maximize shareholder value, you would have said they had to approve that merger because that would mean that their shareholders, whose share stock was currently trading at 40 or $50 a share, would receive $70 a share. But the Delaware court said, no, you don't have to do that. The business judgment rule applies. Even though your shareholders would end up with more money if you approved the merger and took the company private, you don't have to do that. So that case makes it very clear there's no legally enforceable duty to maximize profits or returns to shareholders as long as you're a public company. What if they had, um, what if they had yeah. instead picked a second best price? So you said the offer was $70. What if they had gone with a firm that offered $60? Then they would have then they might have been legally liable because the idea is this is a situation where the shareholders are uniquely vulnerable. They're being forced to leave the company and they don't get to pick the price at which they're being forced. Um, or they have limited input into it. So that would have been an exception. But interestingly enough, um, those sorts of cases are not very common. Directors, and that's because directors have the discretion to do what we call just say no. They can just say, we're not going to sell the company at all to anyone. And as long as they're not essentially requiring that the existing shareholders take money and leave, um, they are protected by the business judgment rule. So given that the business judgment rule provides such protection and broad latitude to directors, why do you think that for benefit uh, corporation legislation has become popular, uh, providing this new class of corporation that explicitly lets directors uh, and managers, I think, take into account other factors and other stakeholders? There, there are two advantages to the benefit corporation form. Um, one is um, the business judgment rule says that directors may consider 
the future and the interests of the corporate entity and the interests of other stakeholders in making decisions about business strategy. But it doesn't say that they must. The same latitude that the business judgment rule gives directors uh, to take a broader view of corporate purpose also gives them the latitude to take a narrow shareholder value focused view of public purpose. So um, really, uh, in a typical C corporation, as we call them, um, the board can choose a number of different goals, and there's no assurance um, that they are necessarily going to look at after the interests of other stakeholders. A benefit corporation is allowed to put in its charter that it not only may, but must pursue benefits for non-shareholder groups. So that's one big difference between the two business forms. Um, Related and perhaps more important, even though corporate law does not require directors and executives to maximize profits and shareholder value, unfortunately, we've had a change in executive compensation practices, driven in part by a change in the tax code, that has caused companies uh, to get in the habit, as it were, of compensating their top executives according to share price performance and shareholder returns. And it's that change in executives' incentives that probably more than anything has driven modern C-corporations, public companies, to focus so obsessively on short-term shareholder returns. And in a benefit corporation, you wouldn't have those kinds of compensation structures. Uh, they'd be very inappropriate given that the charter of a benefit company typically says there are other things that you're trying to accomplish. That certainly makes sense. And uh, I think they've passed in 17 or more states at this point, so I think it's in increasingly popular option for people to choose. Yeah, it's certainly the, the numbers are not bad. The problem is that the firms that become benefit corporations tend to be relatively small. I would say that benefit corporations still account for well less than 1% of the total value of corporate af assets and corporate revenues out there. Um, and that's probably going to remain true for the foreseeable future. Uh, if we want to think about the direction we want to take our economy, if we want to think about the kinds of employment opportunities that the American economy offers, if we want to think about the kinds of products we produce, the kinds of tax revenues, uh, if we want to think about the general health of our economy, um, we have to focus on what's going on with our C-corporations. And any ideas there? Yes. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Um, there is so much that we can do to reverse the destructive trends that we've seen. Um, and by the way, to give you a sense, uh, my book not only discusses this legal um, misunderstanding, as it were, which is very important for understanding uh, how we got here, but it also uh, discusses some of the evidence on what effect that's happening. So as we we changed this, uh, we changed the tax code back in 1993, and that's when we really started seeing executives being paid with stock options and having their bonuses tied to shareholder returns. Um, and there have been a bunch of other changes in the law as well, driven by the shareholder value myth and this mistaken notion that that's when companies are well run. And what we've seen is as the business world increasingly embraces this idea, some pretty negative effects are uh, coming along at the same time. So uh, one thing that's happened is that the number of public companies has been cut by more than half. In the last 15 years, we've seen a 55% decline in the number of public companies. The life expectancy of large corporations has been cut dramatically. Um, 50 years ago, the average Fortune 500 company could expect to be in the Fortune 500 for half a century or more. Today, the average Fortune 500 company 
stays on that list less than 15 years. That's one five, 15. Um, and as I've already mentioned, the returns from holding public equity are actually down. Uh, all of this embracing of shareholder value is actually producing less value for shareholders. So we've got lots of reasons to think that the direction we've been moving is the wrong direction. It's time to go back. So these are some of the things we could do. The first thing we could do is see if we can go back and change the tax code and fix the mistake that we made in 1993. Right now, the tax code requires companies to tie their executive pay to some pre-existing metric of objective performance in order to get a tax deduction as a business expense. And, you know... Above a certain dollar threshold, right? Well, above a million dollars. But these days, almost every CEO gets paid above a million dollars. Um, 80% of CEO pay is tied to some sort of formula. Um, and what we found is that that just invites CEOs to work the formula. And far from cutting CEO pay, which is the original reason behind this tax code change, it's actually only caused it to explode. And I think even worse than the contribution to inequality and this, this exploding CEO pay is the fact that it's created really perverse incentives for CEOs to do whatever they have to to get the share price up in the next two or three years so they can uh, their options vest and they can sell their shares and get out. Um, another uh, unfortunate trend that has gone along with tying executive pay to shareholder returns is a decline in the tenure of CEOs. So now the typical CEO is in that position between five and six years, which means they're really not planning for the long term. They're focusing on getting that stock price up in the few remaining years they have as CEO. So it's a real relentless pressure and financial incentive to focus on short-term results. I certainly agree with you that the short-term focus both in and outside of firms can be really destructive and yeah. uh, seems to be increasingly prevalent these days. Yeah. And not surprisingly, some of the people who've been pushing for CEOs to be compensated according to these short-term metrics are hedge funds, which are themselves short-term investors. Hedge funds love this way of compensating CEOs because it means that the CEOs are perfectly happy to go along with an activist hedge fund plan to you know, strip money out of a firm by paying a big dividend and cutting employees and uh, cutting back on R&D. That's great for the hedge fund, which plans to sell as soon as the stock price up goes up. And so hedge funds love it when CEOs are paid with stock-based compensation. So you said change the tax code and change people's uh, ideas of what their job is as directors and managers, you know, not necessarily maximizing shareholder value. Oh, yeah. Um, one of the things uh, that, uh, I mean, back at the tax code again, but it's actually one of the best uh, blunt but very effective instruments. Um, right now, uh, the average holding period for a share of stock in an American public company is, can you believe this, four months. On average. I'm surprised it's that long with all the coverage we've seen of this hyper-trading activity done by computers. Well, even if you take out the computer-driven so-called algorithmic trading, the typical mutual fund and pension fund even only holds, holds their shares for around two years. Now, this is a really interesting phenomenon given that most of the people who are investing money in pensions and mutual funds are saving for very long-term goals, particularly they're saving for retirement. So why are the mutual funds and the pension funds trading so frequently? Um, well, one of the reasons is right now the tax code doesn't penalize them for trading frequently. 
we can change that. Uh, we can change the capital gains rules so that they apply to uh, retirement fund trading, and we can also change the capital gains rules so that they reward people who hold long-term. So right now, the U.S. tax code says for individuals, any investment held for more than 12 months is treated as a long-term investment. Now, I can't get my kids through orthodontia in 12 months. <laughs> like, <laughs> what makes that a long-term investment? What we really ought to do is have a system that does something like ordinary income tax treatment for any investment held less than three years, uh, give a slightly subsidized marginal rate to investments that are held longer, and eventually, if someone holds an investment for seven years or more, you could even reduce the tax rate down to zero. That is, I think, a very politically palatable um, uh, proposal. It's got a carrot as well as a stick, uh, and it might do a lot to get our investors focused on long-term performance. And have have you or someone else run the numbers on that in terms of what, what that costs or whether that would generate more revenue? I guess it all depends on how people react and behave differently in their investments. But, but. Yeah, it is It is actually possible it could generate more revenue. But more than that, it will generate better economic performance, which is what, in case, in case you know, no one's noticed, that's something we should be worrying about right now. Uh, our economy is in a seems to be in a phase of what some economists have called secular stagnation. And I have come to suspect that the reason is because companies are not making the sorts of investments they need to make to generate long-term growth. So, you know, back in the heyday of managerial capitalism, uh, a typical publicly listed company, the big companies, invested 70% of their profits in research and development and marketing. 70% of their profits were reinvested back in the firm. Today, that figure is less than 10%. Yeah, I've seen and some of these numbers, and they're, they're truly surprising. And it's almost, uh, I wonder if they really can be believed they're so dramatically different. Uh, I, I believe them completely because we've got an explanation. A firm that tries to retain its profits today is almost sure to be targeted by an activist hedge fund. It even happened to Apple. It's impossible for companies to focus on long-term investment in today's uh, in today's investing activist investor activist investor climate. Although Apple had what hundreds of billions of dollars in cash that they in fact were keeping a lot of it overseas to avoid paying taxes in part, and it wasn't as if all of that was being reinvested. But that's I mean that's absolutely true, but that doesn't change the basic fact that because of the pressure from activist investors, you simply can't retain a large hoard of cash unless you do what companies like Google have done, which is to go public with a so-called dual-class share structure that uh, essentially makes sure that public shareholders have no voting power. But there's two problems with the Google approach. And by the way, I think there's, it's no coincidence that Google is one of the most innovative and research-oriented companies still in existence. They can afford to be because the voting power is all in the hands of their founders and managers. But there's a downside with that approach. The first downside is I, I think you can go too far in the other direction and you can insulate managers too much from shareholder influence. And it's possible that a dual class structure does that. The bigger problem is that Google was only able to do this because it went public with that structure already in place. It's almost impossible for an existing public company to adopt that structure. 
which means all of our existing public companies are subject to these pressures for focusing on the short term instead of investing for the long term. And that's why we see companies like Dell going private, and we see companies like Hewlett-Packard you know, and Motorola and Kodak basically becoming thin shadows of their former selves. These were research powerhouses once upon a time. For keeping their quarterly earnings up, they stopped making the long-term investments they needed for survival. So you're talking as much about short-termism here as you are some of these other things, and they're they're all certainly blended together and mixed. Our listeners are often interested in the startup side. It comes in our name, Startups for Good. And we've been talking a lot about public companies. So if you could help connect back to the decisions you're making early on in a business as you're beginning to form it, as you're beginning to build your for, your board for the first time and do some of these first things, do you have any advice for people at that stage as they're thinking about these issues? Absolutely. Um, so and in fact, the experience that I've just been describing, I hope is going to be very helpful for your audience because it tells them what they want to avoid. And they're at the stage where they can avoid it. So you want to adopt a, strat- a strategy, I think, like Google, which is to think ahead and think, um, what are the corporate governance structures that I can put in place today that will allow me to raise capital without putting my company in a situation where it won't have the breathing room it needs to pursue our business, our business vision pursue our strategy and make the long-term investments we need to make this be a success. Um, for example, at this stage, your, uh, your, your audience can think about things like time-weighted shares and time-weighted dividends. Like the idea is that if and when you stop, uh, voting, you can actually the attract longer shareholders to their shares, uh, the more votes they get per share up to a certain point. Um, people are looking into the concept of time-weighted dividends. The idea is the longer a shareholder holds their shares, the larger the dividend they get. I mean, obviously, you don't want to go crazy. You might want to put a cap. You never get more than 100% more or 200% more than other people who've just bought their shares. But it's a way to attract the shareholders you want and discourage the shareholders you don't want. Well, I think that's great advice to be thinking ahead from the very beginning about the kind of company you want to be building and the long-term nation of that. And that really fits in with how you build your capital structure, not just who you get investment from, but how you structure it. And uh, really appreciate you coming on the show today. Oh, well, it was was my pleasure. And, um, you know, this all comes from uh, my basic view is that uh, the business world is essential for peace and progress. (laughs) has done as much to accomplish that as just about any other institution you can name. Uh, But that doesn't mean we can't do it better. Um, And so I think it's important to bear in mind that, uh, you know, a lot of us, at least uh, a lot of the people that I hang out with, believe that business should work to benefit society and not just to make a few people rich. And if we look at the business world with that as our goal, uh, there's a lot we can do. Um, and there's a lot we can do beyond what we're already doing. Wonderful, noble, and inspiring words. We thank you very much for being on today. Oh, well, thank you again for inviting me. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's Startups for Good, all run together, no spaces, 
www.thrivingcommunity.com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website. 